0: Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to the Bitcoin STOA for another episode of Hash Power, which is a long form show where we invite mining companies to tell their stories and talk about everything related to Bitcoin mining. Current Moscow time is 1531 at 709267. And as a reminder, the Bitcoin STOA is a community funded platform. So if you enjoy listening, you can support the project by sending some stats to the QR code on our homepage at BitcoinSTOA.com. Or you can stream sats using something like the breeze app which has a really badass podcast feature with that said today i'm honored to welcome jason zaluski who's the head of technology at hut eight jason thanks uh for being here and welcome to the stoa
1: yeah uh, it's great being here it's uh I, I watched a few of the previous episodes on your youtube channel and uh some great content there so uh right. i'm really happy to be here
0: it's cool. cool man thanks for uh thanks for watching and yeah. Thanks for the generosity of your time because you know, it's, a, it's a weekday uh, on a Thursday at 1 p.m. I'm sure you have a lot of things to do. So taking some time out of your day to tell the story of HUD-8 and tell your story, um, I think is really cool and, uh, and I appreciate the time. So maybe before we get into everything related to HUD-8 uh, and Bitcoin mining specifically, I'd love to hear your personal Bitcoin story. You know, When did, when did Bitcoin find you? And maybe, what are the more significant moments from when that happened uh, until where we are today?
1: Cool. So, um, you know, I'm not like a day oneer, day zero. Um, it took. Uh, I I definitely heard about it. Like there's this concept of internet money floating around. 2009, of course, 2010, uh, and I think I started digging into it later on um, that year. Um, I tried mining. Um, at that point, I think it just made the transition to like GPUs, but I was still trying to mine on a CPU. Of course, running my own node. I think I like ran out of hard drive space and just kind of like failed miserably. <laughs> and just <laughs> like, all right, well, we'll re- revisit this sometime in the future.
0: When what uh, what uh, around what time is this? We're talking. I mean, if it's CPU and GPU, it's it's like decently while uh, a while ago.
1: Yeah. So I think. Uh, 2010, I believe, because nice. um, I kind of have this memory of being in an apartment in Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, staying up late and uh, <laughs> trying to get this to work. Um, nice. and, and so I was kind of early days. I was um, I've always been like a tech nerd, always had like gaming GPUs at home used to do a lot of folding at home so it's like you you dedicate your computing resources to the search for extraterrestrials and various things like that. so I always thought very cool that just dis- that distributed compute model was uh, just like a pretty awesome thing um, but it wasn't until likely like two a year later when I went um, back to business school and started really digging into, uh, economics and thinking about monetary policy, uh, US dollar, Bretton Woods and just how money works and then with the rise of Bitcoin and kind of the the value proposition that it proposed, um, especially on the on the outcome of the financial crisis and like what does it mean to invest your money to hold this currency and just sort of these really like nuancy things that generally no one really cares about or really knows about but i think bitcoin kind of helps bring those things to the uh, forefront and so it served me as like an interesting foil to be like all right i'm learning about economic policy monetary policy how the u.s dollar uh, is like how it all these commodities are US dollar backed and kind of the trade-offs and and sort of diving deep into it. And that's really where it kind of like started latching on. And then uh, um, I didn't, and it was always kind of like this thing where people were talking about it and didn't understand it. And as a, um, at at the time I was working for a, a kind of a strategy consulting group and a lot of the clients were financial based. So they were always asking, oh, is, is Bitcoin going to like destroy hedge funds or doing like, what's the timeline on this? Um, but I, so I was kind of around it, kind of understood the technology, maybe what the implications could be. And in 2016, I was in Toronto and and that's where I really kind of jumped in heavy. So I, I, I worked for a, a blockchain startup there and really, you know, ever since then it's basically become uh, every waking moment, <laughs> whether it's Bitcoin or ethereum or other networks or just the technology in general. it's uh, it's very fascinating and uh, really cool. So
0: yeah, it's got like its own gravitational field. and it's like the more you um, learn about it, the stronger that gravitational pull becomes. At least in my experience that's been the case. And you know, you say you were in a day one or it took me quite a few touch points as well. I think, um, the more touch points you have, the more points in your reality that Bitcoin kind of, you know, stabs through, uh, it's like, it builds more and more curiosity. And then, and then almost always in all the stories I hear, there's an inflection point where it's like, at this point I went hard. And then it was like, there's no coming back. You know, like the ladder becomes (laughs) unreachable when you go down the hole a certain Mm -hmm. distance. And, um, Yeah. Very cool. Appreciate you sharing that. And then when did you, um, so you're in Toronto, you're part of a blockchain startup and then where does the bridge from that, um, to HUD eight sort of, uh, come to, when does that materialize?
1: Sure. So, um, as part of that blockchain startup, that's when I started mining at home as well. So, um, so I've been GPU mining, essentially since then, like on a small scale, like maybe just mm-hmm. a single GPU. At one point I had uh, 12 GPUs kind of mining in this whole thing. Nice. Um, and I, I still have my mining, my original kind of mining rig beside me here in the office. Uh, just as a reminder, it looks, it looks pretty janky, so I won't show it to you because probably like <laughs> violates fire code or something. But um, um, so then after working for this blockchain startup in Toronto, for a couple of years, I moved back out West and, um, you know, the blockchain community is pretty small and I got, I was able to meet a lot of in whether it was like hedge funds or investors or just like interesting people developing mining pools in the space. And then I started a a consulting business. So, um, I worked for a few different companies and, whether it's helping with their strategy or they they were small Bitcoin miners looking to scale up. And so I just started immersing myself in in Bitcoin mining, the ASIC um, kind of community and had a site of my own uh, in New Mexico. I was working with a company called Westblock um, and it was a seven and a half megawatt facility. And one of the, I think one of the, great things about Bitcoin mining is you can kind of do it yourself. Like it was a small team. It was basically just me. And then we, we hired some locals, trained them up to kind of do the on, uh, on the ground work. And it just sort of, yeah, it was really fun, really great. Like uh, a lot of sweat, tears and blood going into that facility. Um,
0: I'm sure that was quite and, and, a learning experience too, of just doing it hands-on at a bigger scale than like, GPU mining at home. And I think just the notion that it's permissionless, right? It's like this Darwinian thing that anyone can mine Bitcoin, anyone, you don't need permission from anyone. You do need to be able to compete on a level of either technology or energy and at Mm -hmm. a scale that makes it obviously profitable for that to continue without losing money. Um, But that notion that no one needs permission, um, you can just do it at whatever scale you want. There's something very cool about that. And I think that's part of why this Network protection layer that is Bitcoin mining is so diverse and so uh, robust, right? Because there's this beautiful incentive structure that changes over time as the price of Bitcoin changes and as you know technology changes and all that kind of stuff. But it really is like this fluid, growing, decentralized network that anyone is welcome to join, and that's there's something really badass about that that probably appealed to you by wanting to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's um, I like that idea that anyone can make the decision on board and start experimenting and and start, start mining at like a really small scale, um, is really compelling. And that's, you know, whenever someone asks me like, Oh, how do I get into it? It's like, you know, just do it. Like, yeah. Like, are you asking for permission? Like that's, you know, your, your, your mind's going to be blown pretty soon once you start getting deeper and deeper into it. Um, and, and so, yeah, I was operating, um, these small mid-scale miners, seven and a half megawatts. I was also consulting on like a 10 and a 15 megawatt facility. And then with the, uh, with Jamie Leverton coming on at HUD 8 uh, last December, she was looking for somebody um, kind of as like head of technology, someone to help uh, bridge the gap there. And for HUD 8, whose operations are in Alberta, which is where I, where I lived. And uh, so we got in touch, we we talked about it. I loved kind of her vision and her strategy and was really excited about like, scaling up and working for uh, like a publicly traded miner at the scale that Hadid operates at. And so that was, I joined the, the team in February of this year. So amazing. Uh, yeah, and it seems like in the crypto world, it seems like, it's like a reverse time dilation where instead of time moving faster, like moves slow. So like, instead of, uh, I've, I've been there I guess for eight months now and it seems like more like four years, right. Just like there's been so much happening over the last eight months. Um, not only in the, in the, uh, Bitcoin and crypto sphere generally, uh, but also at HUD eight and, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a super exciting time. I mean, it's, it's always an exciting time to, to be into crypto. And yeah. You're never late at this. Point. Yeah.
0: You're never late. And there's never a shortage of new information to catch up on. And I think that's part of the, um, the phenomenon of, of reverse time dilation is that the more salient information you're coming across from day to day, uh, the law, lo- the, the more time it feels that you're, uh, living within, right? Like this whole notion that People do jobs that are uninteresting time flies like a year flies by because there's no relevant information to captivate you to actually like pay attention to and the inverse is true when you're in a really uh, engaging job or industry where there's never a shortage of things to do with your time um, it kind of makes it seem like there's a lot more time there and i think that's a that's a good thing it means you're living instead of just like um, being or, or just like enduring um, let's talk a little bit about hud because i know they were founded in 2017 they're based in canada uh, they got a big facility, you have a big facility in medicine hat. And I think, you know, they're, I mean, HUD is really a pioneer in Canadian mining, right? They were the first data mining company listed on the TSX. Um, and you know, part of the history that I didn't know about HUD eight that I was just kind of brushing up on this morning was, uh, that, you know, cause I've always wondered like, where did the name HUD eight come from? And, um, uh, I learned that it was the building at Bletchley park where Alan Turing created the machine that would crack the enigma and intercept enemy communications in World War II. And I was like, oh, that's a great story. That's a really cool story. And, you know, the work that happened in HUD-8, in that HUD-8 saved tons of lives and really transformed cryptography. And, um, you know, when when you when you mentioned Jamie Leverton coming on in December and really being captivated by her vision, what was the biggest thing that stood out when you spoke to her that got you excited about joining the HUD-8 team? What, what was it that made her vision different or really uh, got you excited?
1: Well, I think... Uh, first of all, her her background and her energy is really interesting. Like she comes from the, uh, I guess, the conventional data center uh, world, but then so that brings a lot of expertise of what what an insight into what I thought was really important for crypto miners is you don't like and anyone can make money in a frothy uh, ecosystem like now, right? Like you just get any any sort of hardware any computing device, plug it in and like, okay, you're, you're more or less making money mining. But for, for those of us who have been through a few uh, <laughs> bear, bear markets, bear cycles, uh, you really have to think about operational excellence and like, okay, what are my costs? Like, what's going to happen when and if this drops? Like, how are we doing that? And I think her her experience of of running a a data center where like those things are paramount and you're running this thing like a really, really tight operation, as well as just where it goes, like it goes beyond just mining, it goes into um, high performance compute. What can we do with our expertise of running machines in a very, very lean environment and how do we expand and build upon that? Um, And of course, I mean, being a Canadian corporation, I was really excited with <laughs> joining it. Um, it was it was getting pretty tough to travel around that time, especially to the U.S. Um, and and really, it's it was a great opportunity for me. And it's a whole new management team, so part of it is also kind of rebuilding this business and evaluating the different parts of it and improving it. So I uh, early days, I, I was talking about it. Like it was Theseus's ship, where it's like you have this massive uh, armada that's on the ocean that's traveling, and while it's at sea, you're replacing parts and optimizing and improving it. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's definitely a challenge to replace a ship at sea, uh, but I yes. think ultimately we're 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 bolting on better components, um, and it's been. Yeah. And also that challenge is, uh, was very appealing to me as a, as a technologist and, uh, um, just, I mean, if, when you, when you talk with Jamie, you'll kind of get it right away. Like just her energy is contagious. And, um, there's a lot of interesting, uh, projects that she's brought forward. And I'm, I'm really happy to be a part of it and even in the future. So there's really cool things coming down.
0: Amazing. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Uh, sort of fable that you mentioned with theseus's ship and this even the whole notion that like you said in a frothy environment it's great anyone could just plug machines in doesn't even you know their power rates not that big of a deal Mm -hmm. their uh efficiency and their operational excellence is maybe not that big of an issue but when times get tough which they inevitably will this is just what happens in this world um it's the people who have that operational excellence and and basically are replacing parts on the ship in calm waters that's kind of like you know, it's like when the waters are calm, it's easy to sit back and be like, Ooh, yeah, this is great. We're making lots of money. Um, yeah. Forgetting that, you know, the people who bolt on those extra parts and are upgrading during the calm good times uh, are the people who become resilient enough to last through the tougher times or become or are able to remain competitive. And, um, you know, I think. The big reason for this hash power show is because people, I don't think, fundamentally understand the importance of Bitcoin miners, right? Like everyone loves this thing that is Bitcoin, this decentralized open monetary network for planet Earth that secures property rights for us all. Most people don't understand that it's actually miners who are securing that network. Like without miners, there is no network. There is no security. Mm -hmm. And so I really think that, you know, number one, people don't understand the importance of miners in general. Um, Number two, there's so much bullshit out there that that kind of discounts uh, how important miners are, and actually starts to create a shitty narrative around miners, right? This whole, I mean, you're seeing it less these days, but somehow the amount of misinformation about energy that seems to somehow permeate the minds of the uninformed very easily um, really pisses me off, quite frankly, because it's like the people who deserve the most kudos and respect um, and love are actually the people who are taking the most hits, you know? Like, and what's your take on sort of where the importance of miners? And then this transition that we're seeing now from small scale, widely distributed miners to more of the bigger, um, publicly traded miners. And, you know, I had Bob Burnett from barefoot mining on, and he has this beautiful analogy of talking about like elephants, horses, and rabbits elephants being the big industrial, uh, the big commercial publicly traded miners, the horses being the mid to small scale, and then the rabbits being the home miners and how, you know, a good ecosystem that's resilient has a bit of everything. You know, what are your thoughts on the big, the transition to the big miner companies and sort of, you know, maybe the pluses, the, the benefits that we get from that, but also maybe the vulnerabilities
1: that can also come from that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great uh, metaphor analogy. And I think, um, yeah, that, that it's great. Uh, great example to like illustrate the different sizes and, and how uh, visible some organizations are versus other ones that are like are very quick and agile and can like spring up all over the place versus these uh, large elephants. Um, so, I mean, I've, I definitely have worked my way up from rabbit to through horse and, and now I guess the elephant. <laughs> um, so I think with um there's trade-offs and definitely as an elephant, we can leverage economies of scale and buying power. So like we can get brand new ASICs and equipment for less than smaller organizations for sure, which really helps with um, like capital costs. Uh, But then also we are larger, right? So like the footprint um, on the, Uh, whether it's a grid or the energy required is like much larger. It's, you know, it's not a rounding error. It's, it's hard to, uh, stay invisible, but that's also where you really have to consider your operating environment. So in Alberta being a very energy rich and, uh, not, uh, not regulated market, there's opportunities for, um, good strategic arrangements. So the arrangement we have with the city of Madison hat is one example of that. And where they're, they have these like fairly large capacity and they're an independent energy producer. So then they can make arrangements and commercial deals with, uh, whether it's, uh, uh like cannabis or, uh, miners or heavy industrial, light industrial, like they have the freedom to kind of decide what value they do that. Um, so the, I think it's, it's also just human nature and, and the nature of an organization to kind of centralize and gather resources to do these uh, uh, kind of scale operations. So like we, we can operate 109 megawatts with like 30 employees. And as a, as a smaller organization, you're, you probably have a little bit more employees per megawatt, your costs are higher. You don't have as much buying power, but you're also critical to the network because you're like this smaller five to 10 megawatt or a home miner. So I think it's, I think it's important to have these different ecosystems because as, as evident, like China, if you, if you think about that as a large, um elephant or um, panda when when all those miners go away like it's a clear clear impact on the hash rate right but also the the network survived like it didn't even blink it's like all right Dude. so that was like the, and-
0: that was the most beautiful demonstration of anti fragility of bitcoin's mining network i think like that was like a perfect way to show it off basically yeah. you know obviously probably better not to have happened But Mm -hmm. really good things came of it. And, you know, a lot of people talk about how, you know, Bob Burnett gives the metaphor of food being energy in this ecosystem, in this metaphor of elephants, horses, and rabbits, food is energy, water is ASICs. And you need both in order for these organisms to survive. And this whole notion that like there is abundant food, we are not short of food for people who talk about Bitcoin use a lot of energy. Well, number one, if you understand how important sound money it is for planet earth, then Bitcoin should use way more energy. And I hope it does. And number two, if you understand energy consumption of the network within like a, an actual zoomed out, um, balanced perspective, you realize it's actually like a fraction of the world's wasted energy to secure sound money. Like it's, it's a bargain. Um, but this whole notion that, you know, the food is abundant, but the water is becoming scarce and, you know, the elephants are almost taking up all the water because they need a lot of water to survive. But, so, so people talk about how, you know, it's centralized. So there's uh, a centralized attack vector, you know, politically. But I think on the flip side, it's like elephants are the biggest ones that establish political capital, right? Like for, for HUD-8 to set up an operation in a political jurisdiction or a country, there's a lot of research to go into making sure that if I'm putting up the CapEx to buy all these machines and do this setup, which I need to last like a long time, I'm going to make sure that the political environment I'm doing it in. Um, is appropriate. And I think that that is a stabilizing force for Bitcoin. And I also think that people underestimate how important these big operations are in terms of shock absorbers for the energy system, right? To use, to put um, pro- to put unused energy to productive use, and then also be able to level down if they are grid attached to um, balance out like energy extremes. So I think there's like a lot of really important things. with. And, and the other thing that I think people underestimate is this whole notion that if you're a big company you're publicly traded and you have access to capital you don't have to sell your bitcoin for capex and that is like a very important element And i think hud 8 is the og hodler of miners and um we'll talk about that a little bit later but you know this whole notion that bitcoin miners are extremely important they secure the network that secures every individual's property rights and you know i love michael saylor's seven layers of protection energy technology political financial network spatial and temp- and temporal the first four layers are largely provided by miners, right? Energy, technology, political, and financial. And I think it's like, it's just so important. Like I I, I'm fascinated by mining from the technology, like this interplay between technology and energy. But I also think that they, they need a balanced voice. That is the voice of truth instead of being, um, the voice of bullshit in media from people who are scared of Bitcoin. So, um, Maybe let's talk about hash power. Like what kind of power is HUD-8 using? Um, I know your power is in Canada and there's obviously a temperature advantage there. So maybe talk a little bit about how much power is HUD-8 using? What is the uh, hash rate currently-ish? And what is sort of the power mix of um, of, of what HUD-8 is using in terms of uh, the power generation?
1: Sure. So um, the, so Medicine Hat is where our 67 megawatt facility is. Uh, Medicine Hat is known as Gas City, uh, and so that um, that facility is natural gas based. So it's 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 right next to uh, a power plant, and and that facility is natural gas. Now there, and uh, and then our other site is in Drumheller, which is actually grid connected, um, so it uses the mix of Alberta. So it's wind, solar, natural gas. Um, and and um, so a lot of kind of the energy mix that we're looking at is, well, it's, it's like, all right, well, what's Alberta doing? And there's a ton of solar and wind projects coming online over the next couple of years. Um, and everyone in Alberta has been looking at the uh, those sort of projects and, and understanding how they can become more renewable, incorporate those technologies into the, into their environment. But I think also going back to the value proposition of the different energies, you know, wind and solar only operate when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining. I right. mean, Alberta is an extraordinarily sunny location and medicine hat actually has one of the highest uh, hours of sunlight. Uh, yeah. In North America, cool. Didn't know that. Which is also why there's these massive projects of of solar and and wind coming online there. Um, but you know, it's it's very difficult to change that. So like, okay, well, if you know, Al- Alberta has a fantastic natural gas infrastructure um, and a, a great electrical grid system, and so to be reactionary to say like, okay, yeah, now we're converting everything to solar. Like, I think that would be,
0: uh, doesn't make sense. It's not grounded in reality.
1: (laughs) It's yeah, it's not grounded in reality, but also like, Hey, we want to get there. It's important to do that. Like our, our shareholders and the public feel that there's, there's value there and it's clearly demonstrated. Um, one of, one of the, uh, my specialties in business school was sustainable economics. Um, so it was largely based on, uh, like it was on the east coast of Canada. So it was largely steeped in like forestry and fishing and aquaculture and those sort of things, but the similar principles um, are there. And it's like, all right, well, like we want to be able to um, mine with, I mean, with no emissions, like, Hey, that'd be great. Right. Like, but how, how realistic is that? What's the cost to get there and what timelines are we looking at? But there's, There's also some really interesting innovations happening in the province in the the country of Canada around alternative sources of um, like small nuclear reactors, these interesting things that are happening. And I think to what you were talking about earlier is mining and miners have a really important role to play because they can advance that technology because they have this really strong business case and a very consistent load. going and I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of how like the grid system works and how energy is transported around and uh you're using the, the metaphor of water and that's also a great um analogy too Where if you if you look at municipalities water systems um it's actually pretty astounding how much water is wasted like lost through mm-hmm. leaks and other things but like people all they see is they you know they turn on the taps and water comes out and they're like oh perfect yeah um like a um a long time ago i was looking at some of this information of infrastructure and like major cities lose like 40 percent of the water <laughs> through these mains and it's like if you think about that it's like what that sounds insane but like oh that's actually pretty good like we, we they're doing a good job um so all these things kind of go into a lot of different decision making Um, and like, and I I think not, it's one of these systems that not a lot of the general public public is aware of, just like no one cared about monetary policy, really. Like no one really knows a lot about finance or monetary policy. They don't know about energy and electrical grids or water systems and and how these things work.
0: Um, yeah, I think to to truly appreciate this in in a meaningful way, you need a freaking deep understanding of of complex dynamic systems. And like most people are coming at this with a news headline, which is automatically biased. And there's half the time they don't even read the article. They're like, oh, well, Bitcoin takes a lot of energy. What do you think about that? It's like, well, maybe you should learn about energy and Bitcoin and money first. And then we can have the conversation. Cause otherwise it's like, you know, I don't exist to teach you about energy. You need to take some responsibility. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think it's important to understand like the, the, the incentives of Bitcoin mining, because you know, I think it's Munger that says, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. And the fact that Bitcoin is incentivized to use cheaper energy, which renewable energies are cheaper. Um, and so it's incentivized to use green renewable energy. Uh, Bitcoin is incentivized to use untapped energy, energy that is too expensive to transport from source to use. And the fact that Bitcoin literally just goes to source and can use all these untapped sources of energy. Is super powerful. And so if you look at it from that perspective, it's like Bitcoin is constantly hungry and incentivized to seek out underused energy and renewable energy. Therefore, that's where it's going to trend, right? It's not going to happen. You can't just like blink and have everything be turned over, right? Sustainable also means sustainable business. If you drop everything and try and go full solar and the business collapses, that's not very sustainable either. And so I think it's just like, we know where the lighthouse is. We know where we want to get to. We want to get to more sustainable energy. We want to get to better efficiencies so that we can, uh, from a business standpoint, increase our profitability. But profitability also aligns with our societal incentives. And this is beautiful game theory of Bitcoin, whereby selfish uh, people acting out of selfish nature also acts in our collective nature because the incentives align. And I think without going too deep, you don't really understand that perspective. And so the fear around energy is probably real, but I mean, for example, most people don't realize that like a large percentage of global energy production is straight up wasted. And I think I think the stat that I saw from the last Bitcoin mining council meeting was that Bitcoin uses 0.3, the entire Bitcoin network uses 0.3% of our global wasted energy, <laughs> not of global energy, of wasted energy. And most people like don't even know how to compute that. So um, as people become more informed, I think, things will improve. But yeah, it just really frustrates me that everyone shuts on miners when miners play the most important role in this whole thing. Um, and yeah, maybe a, I'd like to talk about this whole notion of like the fourth industrial revolution being where we are now, like we're breaking into the fourth industrial revolution. And, um, you know, Bitcoin is sort of the native digital currency that acts as the foundation for this world we're building during this fourth revolution. know, the first one was mechanization with steam power. Second one was mass production, assembly lines, electricity, third one, computer and automation. And now we're looking at, you know, 3D printing, uh, AI based automation and Bitcoin as the foundation for how this society and culture is going to work. What are your thoughts on the role that Bitcoin and Bitcoin miners play in this sort of industrial fourth industrial revolution to a better world? Like where um, is that something that is on your radar or that builds sort of a sense of purpose for what you're doing at Huddy? Cause I think it's pretty badass.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think it, it's subtle, but it really changes the paradigm. Like I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, so if we, we back up to even uh, thinking about like the printing press, right. And that was a technology that allowed a single like information to be widely distributed at a very low cost. So, and also, and also kind of incentivized um, gathering in groups, right? So like, then that's where you get these like nation states, because you have a similar language and the printing press produced material, like probably in the most spoken language or the most read language or understood language. And then now you start having these like geographic barriers or geographic regions of like, okay, we speak this language, we speak this language, we, is, these are our values, these are values. And, and then building on top of that, throughout history of, you know, internet revolution, how the information then is freely distributed, but also individuals are also printing presses, right? So instead you had this like big kind of centralized force of, okay, here's what you can read, right? Now anyone, can go on the internet and be a publisher, producer of material. And so that creates this interesting information flow very quickly. Um, what, what that was missing or what was missing from that is like kind of this like monetization or incentives to, um, like the incentives were a little backwards where it's like, hey, let me get this information to you for free. And maybe there's like an ad based model or whatever on top of it. And so I think if we're going forward what like if if bitcoin didn't have a dollar value what would it like and i don't it didn't at first right it just was this thing and right. then and then as people started using it it started to imbue the value of something right so instead of being okay let me send you three bitcoin and like that's an iou for i'll hand you three dollars and you know in real life in meat space here's three dollars and so then that started representing value And I think it's not too crazy to think about how like, okay, well, what was the internet missing? It was missing this underlying value that could be instantly distributed worldwide, verifiable through math, provable. And like the thing that like, what are those characteristics? It's like, okay, well, that's that's money, right? That's internet money. And that's like a very strong use case. And so now if we think about the printing press that encouraged the nation states now bitcoin is this global currency and with what's happened over the last couple of years with covid and like now people are moving out of uh, like city centers they're moving more rural and they can they can work on projects globally they can get paid in bitcoin or crypto um, like it really it's subtle but i think it really changes how people organize and, and how people do work Um, and so it's the and then on top of that is now like the fourth industrial revolution where yes things are automated there's they're mechanized there's not as many people involved in these like very advanced tech um, processes but it's also very complicated and Mm -hmm. so um, like if you if you look at Elon Musk SpaceX versus Tesla like SpaceX from a automation and, and industrialization standpoint is way simpler than Tesla, yes. where now you have, to, you have to build like an assembly floor and like these really intense mechanized processes versus SpaceX where everything is bespoke and you're, you're working on a few rockets and the technology there. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, if you change the underlying foundations of how a society is built, and you're going to get really interesting things as an outcome. Um, yeah, so, no, yeah,
0: you know that's that's really an element we've been missing up until now. And I, you know, people shit on the fiat system, and surely there's a lot to be desired there, right? Like there's a big problem there. But at until now, like for a long time, it was the best we knew how to do. And you know, it's always those transitions into a new paradigm are always kind of messy, um, but they're necessary. And I think this whole notion that you know, viewing money as the base layer communication medium for uh, society to coordinate, right, to, to facilitate trade. And that now, when we say society, we're actually talking about a global world, right, a global interconnected world. And even what you're saying about Tesla, it's like not only do they have mass scale, they also have a global supply chain whereby force majeure will say that one thing in that supply chain will probably get messed up and that could halt everything. And so the complexity, I think, is is a lot to deal with. And a really complex world calls for something that can serve as a value communication medium for this complex world. And fiat is just no longer that, right? It's still in the age of the printing press where nations are siloed, right? Um, And you have this friction where if you're trying to converse with another nation through the language of value, you have all these hoops you got to jump through. You got all these companies that are taking a piece and it's just inefficient. And I, I don't even think people have had we've never had agency until 2008. Right. And now we do. And now there's actually, now that the fiat system is kind of hitting the end of its cycle and failing, I think people have a reason from a pain perspective to actually be curious and want to inquire about how money works. And I find it really weird that we never actually learn about money. Um, and we never, you know, I come from a health background and we never learn about health either. And like what two things are more important than money and health in terms of living an adult life, um, and so, yeah, I think now people have a reason to. And as Bitcoin gets more uh, coverage and gets and, and kind of disperses, people are all of a sudden have a reason to learn about money because they actually have choice. And um, yeah, I think it's very interesting. I think it's like a Bitcoin world's better world because it's a, it's a fairer, more transparent, honest, open world. And um, that's not something that's ever, those aren't words that have ever been associated with money, right? Where everything's done behind closed doors and essentially where we're all getting ripped off every day. And we've just accepted and normalized that that's the way it works because most people don't know how it works. So, yeah. And maybe let's let's talk about this notion of being a, a publicly traded miner and maintaining a hodling mindset. Because I think HUD 8 has, has really been sort of like set the bar pretty high in terms of being the OG hodler of the Bitcoin mining world. And, you know, this, this whole, this new world where as a, as a publicly traded company with access to capital not needing to sell your Bitcoin. You know, you compare this to gold mining, for example. Gold mining companies, they mine gold, they sell the gold right away. And if that tells me something, it's that gold mining companies don't even believe that gold is valuable because they just want (laughs) to sell it to make their money. And, you know, sort of contrasting that to a company that mines Bitcoin, that creates Bitcoin. And instead of selling it, um, maybe because they don't have as much pressure to sell it, holding it really indicates to me that they have beliefs that that's going to be more valuable in the future. So how big, you know, in, in terms of like, the exchanges that you have as a core executive team, um, you know, the hodling mindset, where does that come from? And sort of what is the, um, I guess, business strategy side of holding Bitcoin long-term as a company?
1: Well, I I think you, you basically have what you said, it kind of hits hits on it where it's, um, sitting down as a management team, looking at our treasury, talking about the future, and it's like okay, well, we can we can do a couple things, right? Like we can sell our Bitcoin to cover expenses, and you know, then that's that's how it works. But then, I mean, you look at the value, even just in the last couple of years, where like um, the the value has increased in Bitcoin, and then as as we see S and P five hundred companies like having it on their balance sheet is like okay, well, they they share the belief, and so there's, we, we can be better than just gold miners. Right. And I think there's, um, an interesting dynamic there where it's like, okay, well, why weren't gold miners like banks or why didn't they earn interest on their holdings of, of gold? And, and I, I think, uh, who knows why, like the, the, the systems weren't set up for that. And I think we, as, as Huddake, generally this huddle strategy, um, just kind of, Made sense, right? Like we're we're collect we're uh, accumulating this digital asset for less than what we could buy it on the open market for, um, and and then we so it gives us a big margin of like all right, well, what's what's our break even cost? What's the market value of this stuff? And and then like all right, it's well, liquid. let's hold it it's perfectly it's liquid. liquid. Yeah, we can you can sell it twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. Whenever you want. Uh, now we have lots of protection and custody on it, so you know it's it's in in deep cryo freeze our tre- our treasury, um, but it's it may it just makes a lot of sense. And um, if we don't have to sell, we we won't. Um, now I think we're also that's our strategy, and that's what we've communicated. Um, and I think there's other opportunities that that unlocks, um, especially as. The, the crypto financial instruments mature is now we can do things with this scarce resource, like earn interest on it. Uh, we can use it as collateral. We can do all sorts of things. And it, it really it, it provides more flexibility than selling it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think it's brilliant. I mean, from a fiduciary responsibility to build shareholder value, like it makes a whole lot of sense. And if you look at the past year, you, you essentially, get vindicated for holding Bitcoin because you're like, that's the best thing you could have done for shareholder value. I think another really interesting perspective is that this notion that a lot of the big companies, pensions, hedge funds, like all these big like endowments, uh, they're not really allowed to buy Bitcoin right yet. Like there's a lot of hoops to jump through. It's a it's like a year or multi-year process to get this changed, but they can buy securities. And as a security, HUD-8 is essentially direct exposure to Bitcoin because of how many Bitcoin they huddle. And I think that's a really interesting opportunity for those people who cannot buy Bitcoin directly to essentially do the next best thing, whether it's a micro strategy or a HUD 8 or, you know, any company that's holding Bitcoin on their balance sheet is essentially direct exposure to Bitcoin. It's a publicly traded. And I think that's a really, um, a really cool thing. And it's, you know, not something that was immediately intuitive for me, even now makes a whole lot of sense after hearing, hearing people like Saylor talk about it. Um, and, you know, I think that's a really big competitive advantage to people, to, to companies that huddle. And I think it has to be, you know, there has to be transparency and there has to be uh, obviously agreement on behalf of the core executive team that this is the right approach. But I think the um, value proposition and sort of the benefit of that is only getting reinforced more and more as time goes on. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's really kudos to HUD8 for just being the people who lead by example. Um, This is probably more directly in your wheelhouse, um, which is like the conversation about the future of, mining and sort of, okay, if we look at the next, we look at the next five years, um, what is the interplay going to be? So you obviously have great access to power, um, based on where you are. And I find it really curious too, that the fact that you're in a cold, windy environment actually, and correct me if I'm wrong, does that reduce some of the energy that you have to spend to dissipate heat? If being in that kind of zone, like, is that, how is that an advantage being where you are, uh, in terms of like the mining operation?
1: Yeah, I mean, simply we don't spend any power on cooling, <laughs> largely. Nature, so, nature does it for you. Yeah, nature. So um, if you've seen photos of our uh, facilities, like they're set up specifically to um, take advantage of just the prairie winds that kind of sweep in and and pull all that hot air out. Sure. Um, the only the only active cooling. That we use on sites are the fans that come with the miners, and um, and of course you have control over them, so you you know spin them down. Um, it's it's like very small percentage, like it's like single digits, one or two percent, the amount of energy that we use on cooling versus uh, hash rate.
0: So very cool. Yeah. And yeah, back to the kind of point I was making. You have access to energy; you don't have to pay to cool your machines the technology element, this whole notion that, you know, like every three years we're seeing this evolution in ASICs where like from an S9 to an S19 uh, and, and correct me if any of these numbers are wrong, but from my understanding is like intergenerationally, you're looking at like a five X efficiency increase where like a, a an S19 will get f- five times the hash rate if energy expenditure is held constant. Do you, do you foresee that continuing? And, you know, with companies like Square expressing interest of getting into uh, more uh, probably home mining rigs or Blockstream uh, acquiring spondulies and looking at creating um, ASIC manufacturing. Do you see there being an incentive now to switch over to the technology innovation side? Um, and do you see that, that increase in efficiency continuing into the future? Like say, let's say like one or two or three generations into the future. Is that still something that you're using to make projections of like machine durate, how long a machine lasts for and how, at what point, have to kind of get into the next generation of machines do you see that continuing to evolve
1: yeah so that's i mean um generally way to look at it is like moore's moore's law is a pretty like well understood um phenomenon that intel kind of is it's less of a law and more of a decision a strategic decision that intel made where it's like hey every 18 months we're gonna double performance and half power usage, um, and so the like the original ASIC miners were um, whatever some nano nanometer, whether it's like thirty two or sixty four, and then now we're getting into like the sevens and the fives, um, and we're kind of approaching the like the I don't really see the next generation in having that same doubling as the difference between an S9 and S19. Like we're going to continue to see iterative improvements, but like they won't be as vast as that. Um, But I still think the current generation of miners, um, we should should see um, like a 50% improvement over, like we'll start seeing ASICs being released that over the next year that are kind of in that iteration.
0: Which isn't um, insignificant. I mean, it's not a, like a step function like the other ones, but like that's still at us at scale. That's pretty significant.
1: Oh yeah, and so then, but then you're constrained of like quantities and timelines and and costs, right? So it's you have to you have to really analyze and make a prediction of like, okay, well, spent, like reissuing capex to buy this new machine, like what's the life cycle on that? How much benefit of it versus? Um, like okay, well now that this new machine is out, I could buy like the late, like the last generation for for lower capex, and True. so you have all these things playing around, and and that's also where, as a global uh, kind of industry, um, just so for argument's sake, let's say like North American miners, they always buy the latest and greatest because they're well capitalized, right. um, they have higher power rates. Um, just for assumption, let's go with that. So then um, it makes sense for them to buy the most efficient machine. And then what they do with their older machines is either, um, well, keep them running, but if they're constrained by capacity, then it's like, okay, well, let me sell this less efficient miner to another company somewhere else that has different costs and and maybe risk tolerances and all sorts of things. And so you see this flow of ASIC miners go from like, okay, like who are the well-capitalized companies And then if the last generation of equipment flows down to these other companies who can still operate and they contribute hash power to it. Um, and I think it's a really fairly efficient, uh, market where there's, um, you know, somebody will source it and there's a, there's a burgeoning, uh, retail and secondary, uh, brokering market for ASICs.
0: Um,
1: and that's really where you find out what the cost of these things are now. Getting back to the advancement, like I, we're we are going to see these iterative development, but I don't think we'll see like these huge step functions and like this massive acceleration. But um, and it and it comes back to like what the economics of mining are is right. So right and the uh, the having is always something where it's like it shocks the network right. So if yep. you are a miner who doesn't have the most efficient machines and then you walk into the having like now your revenue is like half right yep. um, and so you have to take that in consideration and i mean those are these are known things that are happening right like you can you can look at the code and be like okay march 2024 like that's when that's yep. when my revenue is having it's predictable um and but then if if bitcoin right now is at 65 it's if it's at 100 if it's at 150,000 like you know that changes the economics yeah, stay with that. So like, it's this interesting equilibrium of all these pieces, energy price, ASIC efficiency, price of Bitcoin, uh, difficulty of the network, of course, um, and all these things kind of go in. So it's, it's constantly changing, but I think um, like every miner who's sophisticated is evaluating this, these sort of things and planning it out. But the most difficult thing, is, of course, is forecasting the Bitcoin price.
0: Yeah. And I guess underlying all of that is still operational efficiency because even through all these variables, you still need to be able to maintain a lean, uh, well-oiled machine in order to have enough of a competitive advantage that you can, you know, maybe that affords you to make, um, a wrong choice on a single variable. If you have a really good operational excellence and that's a buffer to give you some resilience. And I love this notion of the trickle down of technology, right? But like if you live in, if you're in Brazil and there's a a hydro dam that is not being used because not enough people there. Well, you can probably get the least efficient ASIC there because your power cost is essentially zero. And so that's still a profitable machine to operate in that environment. And I really, this notion that it's a truly free market, like the market for ASICs, there's a shortage right now, but that's a truly free market. And when, like you said, when the big companies get the new um, hot off the press, cutting edge tool, they then have a decision to make, like, do we keep our own machines plugged in and where's the, our energy power, um cost threshold whereby those machines are no longer profitable or like you said if there's just capacity in there and so it's really it's like this constantly this is how 8 months turns into 4 years right like the, yeah. the chessboard is constantly getting rearranged and changing and you know as much as there is certainty with like the havvenings and sort of like maybe your power um cost if you have long term arrangements the price of bitcoin is one of the chief elements in terms of profitability of bitcoin money and that is a fundamentally uncertain you know i think we We can see from history that it's probably just going to keep going up but the rate at which it goes up and how that affects your daily operations um you need to be you need to be dynamic to be able to adapt to that um what what place do you think you know like i i start thinking of okay you know jack talks about how square is going to look into open sourcing home mining equipment uh you got elon putting together starlink which is going to basically distribute the internet to anywhere in the world do you see home mining? Like, do you see the rabbits being a more important part moving forward? Um, like the way I see it is like, it's probably good that we get a lot of rabbits, right? Cause it's to really decentralize and make us nimble, but it's more of like a securing through decentralization thing than an actual, like, like I don't think Jackson machine is going to boost up hash rate significantly. And, but I think it's a good thing overall. How big of a role do you see home mining playing moving forward? Um, in, in terms of like the, the whole ecosystem, will it be bigger than it is now? Do you see it being more for stability and decentralization than for actually something that's people are going to do for profitability to make money from? Like, where do you see that playing a role? I won't quote you on this, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts.
1: Well, I, I think so. Like the ASIC manufacturing has transitioned from like European centralization to Chinese manufacturers. Right. So, and, and, but it's, if you look at, the supply chain of what goes into an ASIC, like by far is the, the wafer chips. Right. Um, and so these, these companies have very small percentage. They're very, very small cu- customers of Samsung and TSMC compared to I like Apple, <laughs> right. Dell, ex- Intel, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess until now, um, Intel's an interesting company to look out for as well in terms of, uh now that they're doing their uh they're becoming more of a third party foundry, I think they're an interesting company to to look at to see where they, where they go. And the reason I bring those up is like, all right, is there going to be an ASIC chip in your refrigerator at home, in like your appliances? That's interesting. And and soon, and it may not, it's not going to be the great like top tier, but it's like it's gonna be there and you'll earn crypto you'll earn Bitcoin from yep. your dryer.
0: Um, (laughs) maybe it subsidizes your power slightly, you know, it's not going to make you rich, but like, that's a really good point. I never thought of there's computer chips in everything, you know, the internet of things, everything might have an ASIC component to it and be working for you. Uh, You know, if there's an extra juice that it can allocate to hashing instead of just refrigerant, like that'd be pretty cool. I never even thought of that.
1: Yeah. And I think like when, when a major computer manufacturer um, if they're not already takes a hard look at like Bitcoin mining. Yeah. And like, they will, they will transform the, the water, right. The water source. Yes. Um, and like it, it'll become like an event, like everything mining is also a race to, uh, a race to break even, right? Like basically the difficulty ramps up, uh, as more miners come on the break even so like, the economics of the network are incentivizing operational excellence, having the best, the most efficient hardware, being able to survive the ups and downs. Um, but eventually it kind of points to a commoditization of the hardware, yeah. just like the computer industry. And, and these manufacturers have massive buying power and would be able to like create an ASIC chip very, like at a scale and a cost. And then you start getting into... You know, you go, go down to your local, call it Radio Shack <laughs> and, and buy a little ASIC chip and put it on your uh, appliance at home or plug it into your computer and it just like kind of spins away as well as these like massive enterprise scale uh, form factor that's meant meant to fit into a data center that's like for like the publicly traded miners or even just like smaller horses or, or rabbits if they're so so willing. Um, so I, I, th- I think that's kind of inevitable. Uh, but on what time scale, I'm not sure. It really right. depends on these companies and their manufacturing and, and what, they, what they deem to be it. Um, but yeah, I think that's, I call it, let's, let's say by 2032, when the block reward is like, you know, way, way low and, and transaction fees are starting to be the majority of, of what we see on a, on a daily basis then that's probably where the commoditization will absolutely happen.
0: Um, yeah. Once again, show me the incentives. I'll show you the outcome to yeah. like all these big computer companies, you know, like Dell, I don't know how many laptops Dell's still selling, probably selling a lot of computers, but they have this like new invigorated industry that just popped up that they can now become part of and can be quite profitable, right? Maybe it's way more profitable to Dell, for Dell to put a computer chip in an ASIC Small ASIC unit than it is for them to put it in a laptop. I don't know, but eventually that beca- that ends up going on all the radars. If you understand that these are rational, logical companies that are profit incentivized, it's like it's only a matter of time before it gets on the radar. If, it, like you said, if it's not already, because it's going to take time, right? You can't just like once again, you can't just blink and switch your whole infrastructure to making ASIC chips instead of computers. But you know the incentives align with the fact that that's what they're eventually going to get into. The extent to which they do that and the timeline. Like you mentioned, it's kind of up in the air, but um, it, it's all good for Bitcoin. Everything is good for Bitcoin. This is like someone said that to me one time. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't matter what happens. Everything is good for Bitcoin. If you take a long enough time horizon if you actually understand it. Um, yeah. And, you know, you mentioned it and maybe this is a kind of a good place to get into this is, you know, what does the transition from, you know, I hear all these people that are talking about, oh, yeah, what happens when the block war goes away? We're not going to have network security. It doesn't you know, like there's so much FUD around this nonsense, um, you know, from a high level, like at a zoomed out level, how does this play out from your perspective, the whole transition from block rewards to fees, which, I mean, I guess it says it doesn't happen overnight. Like this is a very long-term thing. And there's a lot of probably uncertainties that we can't even predict right now that can change this. Um, but you know, how much, how much does this influence the conversation at HUD eight, um, knowing full well that like right now you just have to do the stuff now because we live now. But, you know, how does this play out from a broad level in your opinion, um, you know, switching over?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think like the crypto industry is like very dynamic and is, is basically before even the first inning, if we're talking, if we say like, okay, the Bitcoin industry or crypto industry is like a baseball game. We're in the first inning, maybe even like the national anthem. Maybe right. We're yeah. way early.
0: We're walking into the arena right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of things that will be layered on top of Bitcoin, and whether it's you know daily um, reconciliation or you know like I, I think Lightning Network is a great example where it's like okay, well like Bitcoin wasn't good for transactions, like okay, like enter Lightning. It's like okay now. That's great. And it settles on the Bitcoin blockchain Um, and other networks will settle on their native blockchain or Bitcoin. So I think smart contracts coming in and there's going to be these layers of technology and usefulness on top of of the Bitcoin network, which will um, fees are going to be there. Like that's the economics of the network. And so the more it's used, the more fees will be there. Bitcoin does have like. A transaction limit, like at the core. And so you can kind of do some calculations to be like, all right, well, if I'm a miner and I'm earning this much now, what what's the value of Bitcoin going to have to be for me to like maintain my income right. or revenue streams? And those are like orders of magnitude, right? Like it's if it's 65,000 now, it's $6.5 million is what price of Bitcoin needs to be. But I think that's also... Like that's that's looking at the economics based on where we currently sit opposed to like what's it going to be in four years from now eight years from now 12 years from now like the the speed of development and an adoption of these technologies is like rapidly rapidly increasing and so just to, to say you know to to spread FUD based on like oh the you know, it's going to go down to transaction fees, and miners are not going to be able to secure the network, and it's going to be vulnerable. Is is like way premature because like yeah. they're 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 looking at the current environment and like straight lining it forward, right?
0: Yeah, um, they're basically trying to call the World Series, and we're in the first inning of the first game in the first, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, first the two teams that are playing today, and they're trying to call the World Series. And I, you know, I I kind of did this thought experiment with Bob, where it's like the experience of buying a house right now is shitty, right? It's like in the olden days where you need lawyers and you pay, there's a huge amount of friction of doing a transaction to to settle the ownership of a house. And this whole thing of like, well, okay, fast forward 20 years, it's not hard to see that settling a house will be done on the blockchain and all of the legal fees that I pay will be built into a fee market to get space in that block. And, you know, you can do say the same thing with a, with a car with a business, like any major transaction that you need to settle in a trustless way, you can eliminate a lot of the legal friction and bullshit, uh, by simply putting, rolling that into a smart contract and putting a portion, even if 50% of the friction and fees associated with doing with, um, switching ownership of a house goes into uh, a fee. Like that's a whole new paradigm that we can't even imagine right now because it's so far in the future. And so I think if there's anything that I've learned, like Bitcoin figures it out. Like the collective intelligence of everyone using Bitcoin and the efficiencies that this new thing creates um, and, the, and the, the potential for things we haven't even thought of yet. I think that's the big key element. Is, right If you're trying to extrapolate from today based on what we have available today, like you said, um, obviously you reach a dead end because we're not at that point yet. And yeah, I think... It's it's almost like wasting. It's it's fine to like think of these things, but it it almost I can't help but think it's almost like wasted mental energy to think of something that you have no context to even be able to predict. Um, so and clearly, it's like clearly people are thinking of this, right? If you run a publicly traded mining company and there's a lot of money at stake, this is something that is in your mental model of of how to make projections, but it's also probably not going to be so heavily weighted at this point because there's still a lot of variables um, that are uncertain. So. Yeah man I appreciate your take on all this. I think uh you know what does the what does a day-to-day life look like in the chief technology officer of a mining company at a high level, you know without getting into too many details is it mostly research Are you doing is it mostly meetings like what does a day in Jason Zaluski's life look like at HUD-8? I'm just this is like a selfish curiosity.
1: <laughs> well, I mean it it kind of shifts. There is there's definitely a lot of meetings um and but it's all kind of project based and, and I mean, we're, we're under a lot of expansion. We have a lot of, uh, new equipment coming, um, basically from, uh, basically until December, 2022, we will be getting new ASIC equipment every month. Whoa. Um, and so at, at the lowest point, uh, like a thousand units per month, uh, 2022, which is like, so capacity planning uh, as well as, I mean, there's a lot of, I mentioned earlier, Theseus, the ship, like we're replacing components, we're understanding some things in place, like how do we improve it? Is this a good fit for our strategy going forward? How do we move forward and progress and advance this? Um, I mean, being, being head of technology is interesting because there, we're a technology company if you look at our vertical, like, okay, we're using ASICs and compute power to earn revenue and and get digital assets. But then also technology is horizontal throughout the whole organization. So it's like, all right, how is finance our finance department utilizing technology? Um, How is legal? How is our operations, documentation, like boring IT stuff (laughs) that I find really exciting because I love automation. I love advancing it. And once again, uh, eight months
0: turns into four years when (laughs) there's like an unlimited galaxy of applications for your role. I think that's really cool.
1: Um, Yeah. And then of course the strategy of like the crypto side of it, right? So like, okay, what miners are we using? What's the economics? Where's the four curve? A lot of things that we talked about earlier about um, being... Uh, a voice among many of the executive team that brings a perspective to like where's the strategy where's the vision where are we going and and then how do we get there and so I'm I'm I kind of bridge those those two high high level entities is the like the corporate strategy versus the operations so I work very very closely with our head of operations and and our site managers and and things like that uh, who are who run the the our sites um so it's yeah it's very exciting (laughs) never ending and um it's i mean it's not really for the faint of heart either like i think once you kind of get into it like it's the business model is relatively simple the execution um is is where the complexity and especially when you talk about operational excellence that's where you that's where you differentiate yourself Uh, and that's where we spend a lot of time and uh, and we're, we're seeing results. And it's really exciting to kind of see these projects that um, are coming to fruition uh, that are really impacting and improving our, our bottom line and uh, just how we operate. So it's pretty Amazing.
0: cool. Now, those that uh, constant barrage of new machines that you're getting, is that mostly um, replacement of machines? Is that building out new capacity installations? Is that like <clears throat> iterative increases in your current capacity, uh, what's like the biggest, um, use case, I guess, for those machines.
1: So it's a bit of both, right? So we have an existing capacity of 109. We've recently announced a new 35 megawatt facility coming online. Um, so some of the miners will go there. Um, we, we do have a plan, uh, to reach, um, kind of hash rate goals by the end of next year. Um, And so it's it's kind of a mix, right? Like you can achieve that hash rate by getting new miners and increasing your efficiency. And you can also get there by um, expansion. And um, so it's like multi-pronged. And then another aspect of it is our uh, GPU fleet as well. So uh, we've onboarded some GPUs that are mining Ethereum and mining the Ethereum network, but actually we're being paid out in Bitcoin. Cool. And so, because of the efficiency of the machines, our cost to mine a Bitcoin is under three thousand uh, dollars. Wow,
0: that's insane. Yeah. And it, I think I read from your website that you guys are running about two and a half exahash. hash. Does that does that make sense?
1: Uh, well, that's that's our. We're gonna approach that by the end of the year. Okay. Uh, cool. At, like live right now is one point three. Holy shit! That's a huge, That's like almost a doubling. Yeah. So we have an exahash arriving. uh, So we, in, in July, we, we were really well positioned to take advantage of the Chinese exodus. And so we were, we always have ongoing communications with a variety of ASIC uh, manufacturers. And so we were just really primed and ready. And like they said, okay, well, we, we have an exahash to be delivered if you want it, here it is. And it's, so that's being delivered now. October, November, December, that so we'll have, have a busy, hash busy
0: apartment. Q4 at HUD 8. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of, um, power, like e- we quote power in megawatts. Do you know off the top of your head, how many mining machines would be associated with, for example, one megawatt of power? obviously it depends on the machine, but like ball, but just to like con- make this concrete for people because we talk about, you know, oh, we have an exit hash arriving. It's like, oh, we have 0.5 of the Bitcoin network <laughs> arriving just like on a skid. How many miners are you looking at plugging in for every megawatt of power um, that you're plugging into your system?
1: So roughly, um, so then like a micro BT um, uh, M30S, so we would be, so like that's kind of this you know, typical factor or an S-19 for that matter. So yeah. you'd fit about 300 in a megawatt.
0: Okay. Okay. So that gives some perspective because when you got 300 a megawatt over like 110 megawatts, uh, that, that's, a, that's a large conglomeration of computing power. And I think it's yeah. so cool that literally just the notion that computing power, taking meat space energy, feeding it into computer power, And the output being the world's first sound money is like, it seems like a sci-fi movie from like if 10 years ago, you saw that in a sci-fi movie, you'd be like, Oh, that's kind of crazy. I don't think we'll ever get there, but like that's reality. And it's, um, it almost still seems a little bit surreal to me. Even I've been in Bitcoin, like in the Bitcoin space since 2015, lightly at the start, but more so recently. And it still seems like it's like, it feels like you're going to wake up one day and be like, oh, I just dreamt of that. That was too crazy to be real. And it's, yeah, it is pretty cool. Uh, let's go through some rapid fire questions. So these are, I just, whatever comes to the top of your head, long answer, short answer, doesn't matter. And then we'll wrap things up. And uh, I want to be sensitive to your time here. So what's your favorite Bitcoin book to recommend to a complete newbie?
1: Well, it's good. I would probably, I mean, Bitcoin book. I mean, I would, I would point them directly to the white paper. I think that's the easiest to uh, consume. I mean, it's, it's fairly short, very concise. I think the other books, um, kind of echo it and some of flush out some of the ideas mm-hmm. and, and then some go into like the finance and the monetary policy and things like that, like the Bitcoin standard or you know, a few, few books like that, or even blockchain revolution. Like, I think that is, takes the technology perspective. Um, but yeah, I, I, like, that. I like
0: Bitcoin. Whenever people? go straight to the yeah. source.
1: Yeah. And then find out what you're interested in. Like, do you lock into like the money aspect of it? And then they're like, okay, like, here's the, here are the books that you read now. That's like everything to do with like the monetary and, and sound money aspect to it. Or are you really keen on the technology and the Byzantine fault tolerance? And like, now you go into uh, probably uh, more of like the O'Reilly series um, of like, uh, how Bitcoin works and, and uh, cool. things like that. From uh, and there's you know, go to forums, go to like there's you can kind of once you start that once you like peek over, you're just like down the rabbit hole and <laughs> off yeah. you go.
0: Then it's a maze. There's like there's no shortage of different directions you can go. Um, what's your favorite mobile wallet to use?
1: Uh, my favorite mobile wallet, well. Uh,
0: if you use one, I've asked that before and someone's like, I don't use a mobile wallet. I'm straight cold storage. So it, that, that could be your answer too, but I'm always curious to see what, which ones people gravitate towards. Cause the choice is becoming like overwhelming now of what's out there. Um, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: I mean, I have a, I have a ton of different mobile wallets, um, l- but largely I, everything is in storage. So everything is on like a hardware wallet. I, I don't do a lot of uh like hot wallets um so i mean one thing that i i've started using is uh shake pay here in canada like that's that's nice. kind of a, a pretty standard thing it's it's set it and forget it sort of thing yep. but
0: cool yeah um, i think the dca approach is very powerful and i think that creates like a a massive pool of people who are just, you know, like you said, set it, forget it. And is giving like this floor support to the price as people just accumulate in dollar cost average. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the thing you're most excited about in the Bitcoin space as we close out 2021? Like what are, what, what are like one or two things that you're like really stoked about? It can be related to Hade, it could be related to the macro environment. Um, Yeah.
1: Well, there's a, a taproot upgrade coming pretty quick, so that's that's pretty exciting. Um, I remember 14th, I think, right? Uh, yeah, just coming up here on like early in the week, 15th, 14th. Cool. Um, I'm not sure what it is in in Moscow time, but it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. So I think, and those are that's a pretty big event. Um, does that affect or, your business
0: at HUD eight in a big way? Or is it more just like you're excited about it for the sake of the Bitcoin network? Like, do, is there any implications on the business side for you? Uh,
1: not really besides some of the security features and, the uh, like kind of the, uh, like the wallet technology and like the multi-sig, um, kind of goes into it. A lot of the, the other aspects, um, are for like pools and, and people who run Bitcoin nodes and things like that, uh, which I, which I do as well. Uh, so I think that's an important thing. Um, very much like mining. Like I kind of feel like anyone who's into crypto should, uh, should, or could be mining at some level, right. Even it's just GPU. Like it's a single GPU doing it. I think it's, um, contributing to the network. Same as running a node and it's getting pretty easy to run a node now with some of the, like, um, just like, quick, you know, like installers and you can use Raspberry Pis and all that sort of stuff. And it's, it's getting easier and easier to do that. And I think it's a great thing to do for, for very reasonable cost. And that's like direct contribution. So,
0: yeah. Like I spun up an umbral node with the Raspberry Pi and I'm fairly tech, um, I wouldn't say ignorant, but like, I'm not, I'm not advanced in the technological world. And I tried to spin up a node probably like two years ago. And as soon as command line prompt came on my screen, I was like, yep, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna try again next year. And this year I did it with Umbral and I literally thought I did it wrong because I was like, there's no way it can be this easy. This is not this is either a completely different ball game now or I missed something and I think it's too simple. And it turns out it was just really simple. And uh, it was actually a really fun experience. It was like, you know, Sunday morning, take a couple hours, put together a Raspberry Pi. It was like a fun, it was like an, a a fun Bitcoin experience for me. Maybe that's like a really people are probably like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? But I think the average person can now run a node. Um, and even just from the standpoint of seeing the guts of how this thing works and seeing each block go through is like a very interesting peer into the mechanics of how Bitcoin, the organism works. And, uh, you know, Umbral is constantly adding new apps to put in there and just, you know, like the pace of development, especially in lightning. Um, and even just like dipping my feet into the world of, uh, opening up a lightning channel and seeing what that's all about. It's like a whole different world. And the first time I sent like, Hundred sats to someone for basically zero sats. I was like, "Oh shit, it's here! It magic internet money that's free and instant is here." And it was like, "Yeah, it's um, pretty special." Well, Jason, thank you for your time. Thank you to the entire Huda team for leading us through this fourth industrial revolution and basically protecting all of our property rights because, it's like, it's super, super important. And I think most people, you know, you learn about Bitcoin either through curiosity or through pain. And I think most of the world that has a current essential utility of Bitcoin gain that utility through pain, right? Like when someone lives um, in Argentina or Venezuela, like there is significant need for something like this. And I think those people that might not be vocal in thanking you that you might not see in the internet are the people who most need this. And I think most of the rest of the world is very quickly realizing that we also have a need for this uh, or else our purchasing power just melts away and it's becoming really obvious now. So thank you for all the work you do. Thank you for taking the time to share uh, what what your team is up to at HUD8. Thanks for being the OG hodler in industrial or, um, you know, publicly traded mining companies, I think it's really, I think you get some serious brownie points with the, with the uh, Bitcoin community for doing that. And uh, to everyone listening, thanks for being here. Thanks for your time. Uh, if you enjoyed the conversation, you can go to bitcoinstoa.com, send some stats to the QR code on our homepage. And uh, that's it for today. Thanks for listening to HashPower. Wishing you all a, a great rest of your day and ciao for now.
1: Thanks everyone. Great chat.